This is Up the Creek, the definitive Jonathan Creek podcast with your host, my good friend Daniel Krupa and me, Gav Murphy. Today, we're figuring out how entire houses can disappear, whether malevolent spirits can commit murder, and whether the Jonathan is a dab hand at After Effects. So on this podcast, we talk about Jonathan Creek via the effect, the method, and the reveal. Daniel, what is or are the effects of the Judas tree? I don't know which one to start. I'm going to zero in on the one that is the most Jonathan Creek, which is the unsolved Victorian crime. The time of death of Dr. Thaddeus Northcote is predicted exactly by an Egyptian femme fatale. There is no one within 20 feet of him at the time of his death with no marks on the body and no poison found in his system. That is the mystery that is the most appropriate for Jonathan Creek in this. Yeah. We have a secondary crime, which is the accusation of Hugo Dory's new housekeeper, Emily, is accused of the murder of his wife, Harriet. Yes. And she's proved to be innocent. And to, <laughs> to achieve the appearance of her being guilty, they use quite magical techniques. Yes. But that is not presented as an impossible mystery. She's just accused, wrongly accused of um, Harriet's death. Mm. And then we have another mystery in the 80s. Emily, when she was younger with a friend in a sports car, she saw a, a cottage disappear and then was attacked by a creepy old man. It's <laughs> a lot. And that's before we even get to the coal shed. That's a lot, isn't it? Or the painting that changes. A lot of the time with these big ones, they've got he's got to put so much into it that after a while, it just feels like you're being hit around the head. And you're just like, oh God, this, uh, how is this connected to that? This is go, it goes on for so long and it's so weirdly elaborate. So very much like the other specials, it's got this dual narrative of the period crime and the modern day mystery. Yeah. So you had it in Satan's Chimney, you had the Puritans and the Protestants. Yeah. In Grinning Man, you had the 1920s spiritualism. And this, you've got this Victorian crime from the 1880s, which weirdly links into the present crime. In some ways. Yeah, you've got that one. You've also then got an 80s crime as well. (laughs) It just keeps on going. I don't even know how we go about tackling this. (laughs) No. (laughs) That's the thing. I think maybe the best way of doing it is to just go straight into the method and then... Because we can't discuss it. This episode is insane. They're all like this now. They're all just mad ideas strung together. And I am... So impressed sometimes that a narrative like this is just chucked on a Saturday night for a bit of a laugh. Yeah, let's do that. Let's go through the main (laughs) mysteries one by one and then go through all the little techniques to imply that Emily's mad. Yes, let's do that. I guess. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. So the method then to all this madness is Dr. Thaddeus Northcote was killed by HCN, which is hydrogen cyanide, which is pumped into his pocket watch. Uh, Salima, the Egyptian femme fatale, shatters the glass when she screams, which releases the deadly gas and that kills him. Should we just do this one first? Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea, actually, yeah. Let's zero in on this so we're not getting bogged down by all the other stuff. Yeah. So this is what happens in the house called Green Lanterns, which they make a big deal about, but actually doesn't really mean much. They should call the episode Green Lantern. Yeah. <laughs> the Judas tree's barely in it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, tangent there. So this is a mystery belonging to the house that Hugo Dory's quite interested in, played by Paul McGann. What's, what's the point of it? <laughs> <laughs> I think, like, that's the thing. I think he's... 
he gets obsessed with it because he is a mystery writer himself. And so there's this idea that Salima left the secret to the murder mm. in a book she wrote called The Riddle of the Sphinx. Yes. And one of the clues for this one is there is um, an inscription on the book saying to, like to HCN. With thanks to HCN, none but we may know. Yeah. So hiding in plain sight is actually the method of his murder. I get... The thing with that is... I was just thinking, like, that can't happen, <laughs> can it? Because you, you have to sing. A, a, it's not singing. You have to... I think it's like... That's like a cartoon when you see in like an opera singer. And an opera singer sings really, really high. And then it shatters glass. But it's not about a singing voice. It's about the frequency of audio. So it would be... It would have to be so piercing and so unique and so perfect to be able to shatter glass. And I think they just kind of accept it here. That is not correct, is it? <laughs> I mean, it's correct in cartoons. It just, it doesn't seem reliable. No. So there's other clues referring to it. They say she saw death approaching and screamed. Yeah. Obviously what she's doing there isn't seeing death approaching by screaming. She's releasing the gas mm. from a distance. I just feel they make a big per- like point of him not having a mark on his body yeah. and no poison in his system. That's not fair because he's murdered by poison. So you're almost intentionally getting people off the scent of it there. But yeah, I just don't, I think that's not very good. And that's the only thing as well. It's like, I know obviously she sees death approaching and she screams and maybe she wasn't expecting to see death and that's why she does scream. Bearing in mind, she's the one that's been threatening him. <laughs> Then for them not to suspect that the scream is something weird, being like, why did she, why is she here? Why is she here screaming? When she's the one that's been threatening him and telling they're like, yeah, this whole situation exists because of that. Yeah, it's it's very odd, isn't it? But you are right. It's like saying, oh, he had no poison in his system. I think, oh, no, he was poisoned though. So, but that poison, I guess. But it's frustrating from a viewer's perspective that because you're almost taking that as like, well, okay, I, know, I need to think of a different solution here. That is right, yeah. And I think like that's the thing. It's, like, it's disarming you of inf- vital information. So there's no possible way you could work that out. Yeah, it's not cool throwing you off the scent like that. No. So there's another clue with this. Slight clue is that we hear early on that Dr. Thaddeus Northcote was friends with the scientist Francis Galton, mm. which Jonathan uh, remembers was the inventor of the dog whistle. Yes. And that gets his brain turning and links it to the idea of a high-pitched ultrasonic noise. Mm. When Jonathan's on the stand and recounts the details of this crime, yeah. I love when they reenact it and they go, oh, people won't understand hydrogen cyanide escaping from his pocket watch. So they have to do it as like a little purple fart. <laughs> But I'm trying to think, this is then relinked slightly to the Harriet death mm. because of the, the the warning of ISIS. Yes. And the idea of the impending moment of her death because they're stuck in the coal shed. Yeah. When Jonathan realizes that ISIS isn't ISIS, um, Egyptian deity, it's f- 15 past 15, like 315. So that's when Harriet is murdered. Yes. So Harriet actually, though, isn't dead. So the body impaled on the spikes belongs to Emily's old friend, Kim, who was responsible, along with Emily, for the death of Hugo Doré's brother 20 years ago. So Harriet pushes Kim from the window, quickly runs downstairs. Hugo switches the corpse for Kim, for Harriet using a method concealed on the garden gate. 
which I, I love that bit. It's so stupid, <laughs> but it's... It's so unnecessary. It looks bonkers. Also, what's weird about this, we'll, we'll in the final section, we'll get onto the mad motivations at play here because it's really quite elaborate. She throws her out. Brilliant shot to get her on the spikes. Yes. And then runs all the way down. So early on, you almost think, oh, there's no way she could have thrown a court, like a, a dummy and then run all the way downstairs. But that's literally what she does do. But it's worse than a dummy because it's a real person who's still alive and kicking and trying to fight back. So this is a weird one because this is using quite elaborate magical techniques. Yes. To basically get away with a murder and pin it on someone. Because what is quite ingenious about this is Kim gets taken to the mortuary and because no one knows her, everyone just takes Hugo's word that it's his wife. Yeah. Which is actually quite worrying because you just would, wouldn't you? If a guy just says his wife died, I think that's quite ingenious actually because in this country village, they're not, they're not going to be able to prove that that's not his wife. You would just go on people's word for stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think they make a big thing of the well saying like nobody knows her from- A bar of soap. A bar of soap, yeah. That line is particularly a little bit suspect because that's said by Mrs. Gantry to Father Alberic outside the church. And then in the finale of the in the court, Jonathan oh no, sorry, at the Judas Street, Jonathan says that exact line. And as we heard the other week, no one round here knows Harriet Dore from a bar of soap. He is nowhere near Mrs. Gantry when she first <laughs> says that. Unless that's just something she says a lot. Or is that something everyone says? That's Renwick just reusing a line, but Jonathan's nowhere nearer when she says that. Yeah, that is weird. I rewound and checked that out. I've never heard that saying before in my life. That's really odd. And this is the, the, the another really weird thing as well, is we keep having this flashback. It starts with this flashback of in the 80s with Emily. Emily and Kim, yeah. So they're in a car and there's a cottage that Emily sees once and then she turns around and it's gone. So the cottage wasn't a real house, but a facade from a movie set which had fallen on the watchman. But I was really confused by this because she remembered, I, I was like, is that something that was from her imagination and she's just blocked it out because of the, because they murdered someone? But that's actually a real thing that happens as well. I assume so. Yeah. This is where it gets particularly wild because you meant to think Emily's really sweet and innocent. Yeah. And there's a line very early on in the episode where they talk about Hugo Dory's fiction. Oh, the trick, of course, is to fool the reader into trusting all the wrong people. And then in the most apparently innocent and everyday details, slowly sow the seeds of terror. And I think that's what this episode tries to make you mm. do through that prologue and something traumatic happening to Emily, it wrong foots you and you think she is a very innocent person that all this stuff is happening to. When it turns out that her and her friend Kim did something actually horrific. And then in the finale, they make a big thing, Joey makes a big thing, the fact that she's repressed all details of it. Yeah, so th this is the thing, because she makes such a big thing of it, I was like, oh, has she misremembered this cottage thing? I feel... But then they say some line going, oh, what, that's kind of slipped through. Because I think they have to say she's repressed it all. Because one, is she recognised, there's no way she wouldn't know who Hugo Dory is. Yeah. How would you not, there was something, you would figure something out that they were connected. I can't, they went on to trial. It's not like they killed someone and were never found out. No. They stood trial for it. They would have been aware of his wider family 
and his family name. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, because if it was just they, you know, they that Harriet and Hugo find out that these are the ones who murdered him, that's fair enough. But you're right, like, she must have really repressed it. But that's I think that's the thing that really confuses me, is she's repressed that bit of it, but she hasn't repressed the other bit of it. Why does that other thing exist, even? Yeah, that's why I thought it was... It does. It doesn't even loop back into it. It's almost just to give. No. I think it's just that maybe another one of those half baked creek ideas in a notebook. Yeah, because I like it. It gives the intro something, but also if the guy's close enough to be grabbing her leg, do you reckon he's still impaled under it, or he's got free and's crawled to her? Because if he's still under it, you would see it. Yeah, I think he's crawled away and he's in pain or something like that. But yeah, I hate that bit at the beginning. It makes me feel so creepy. Like he's so good. Or the production company are so good at finding creepy old men. We've seen the first creepy episode of Inside Number 9 with Andres in the attic. Maybe. The babysitter goes around to this creepy old house to look after their brother Andres. Right. And they go... That's Andres. Milk and rusks. That's all he can have. The disability. That. And the fact he doesn't have a mouth. Uh, and at the end, he, that guy's Andres. Is it? Yeah, he's the guy in the attic. Ah, he's a good man. He's a good creepy dude. I feel a bit bad for him because he's just doing his. He's just a security guy, really. But they've gone. Yeah, he's a bit creepy. He looks like Gollum, but in real life. Yes, yeah, he's, he's a creepy old man, man. Yeah. Okay. So that's a lot. We haven't even talked about all the secondary techniques to make Emily appear mad. Oh, this is nuts. Yeah. So in the coal shed one night, she sees the projection of Salima. Yeah. They do such a terrible job of explaining that to the point that I just don't buy it because they they reuse this idea before, but they introduced this famous magical technique from the 19th century called Pepper's Ghost, which is a sheet of glass yeah. installed at a 45 degree angle. And basically you can, you can make an ethereal projection. Yeah. What you see is not that. No. It's just a projection onto some um, logs. And then when they're stuck in the basement of the coal um, shed, they see a sheet of glass and it's almost gone, oh yeah, it was that. Yeah. And Joey's explanation for why the person looks like Salima, Joey says, oh, she probably just had a photograph of Salima stuck to her face. One, <laughs> that's a real woman we see. Yes. A real woman from the 1880s. Yeah, yeah. Who's dressed up as her? Why? I know it's to make her feel mad and like she's unraveling, but... I just don't think you need that. Or if you do, you've got to explain it properly because they do the picture and it looks like it's Emily's face instead of Salima's face in the painting of her. But again, really strange. Why does that painting exist? <laughs> Why does the painting of Salima in the house? Yeah. And she's caused all this misery, really. Like, why... Why Are they related to Northcote or just own the house? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think they just own the house, yeah. Because also, to, on the pretense for him to get in her room, he's outside using the ultrasonic whistle yeah. to shatter a light bulb. So does he know how Northcote was killed? Yeah, because it's used the exact same thing. I don't like the coal shed thing, because what you see isn't staged using that apparatus. No, yeah. And I just think that's a bit naughty. Yeah, it really is. I think that's, step, that's half of my reasoning for really not enjoying the film The Illusionist. Because one, obviously it came out a similar time to Prestige, and Prestige is a very good film that we both love. But also, the way that it did its illusions, it did it, a lot of them in CGI, like I particularly remember, which is a, the annoying thing is it's a real illusion, which is 
an orange, a mini orange tree sort of growing between, uh, in front of people's eyes. That's a real illusion that they used to do around that time that is based in reality and there is a way of doing it. But in the film, they do it in CGI and just like, yeah, well, of course he looks like an amazing illusionist because you've grown this incredible little orange tree in front of people's eyes, but you've just used computers to do it. It doesn't make any sense. And I think that's the thing, the same thing with this as well, which is really annoying. Yeah. And just, it, it just feels unsatisfying. And particularly from a detective, Jonathan Creek, who like you're so used to questioning stuff when he, uh, like, we've said this before from like episode one or two, when he just latches onto something and goes, oh yeah, that was that. Like, oh, you can do anything with computers or you can find anything on the internet. Like sometimes he throws away stuff that you go, hang on a minute. No. That's the thing. I was still fully expecting them to have a flashback where you see how that effect is achieved. Because you get the flashback of Hugo hitting the wall and switching the painting of Salima and Emily. Yeah. You never get that with the, the coal shed projection. It's because they can't, can they? <laughs> like, I'll rewatch it. Joey's bit where she goes, yeah, some probably someone with just a photo stuck on her face. <laughs> I wouldn't have minded if the picture of Salima looked a bit like um, Hugo's wife, but it's not even her. You can't, in an episode where a, an entire B storyline is all about people rotoscoping mad stuff and using computers for mad stuff, you can't then just go, probably stuck a, a photo to her face. No, that's not how anything works. <laughs> Should we now talk about, I guess the bigger motivations yes because this is very elaborate there is because i went back and i double checked this there is when they first get to dory's house he makes a very pregnant comment about having a brother that is the only reference that you get yeah he says my brother and i and it just kind of hangs in the air yeah the rest of what comes in the finale is completely inaccessible to you as a viewer yeah which I think is quite frustrating. It's, it's completely inaccessible. There's no way that you can know this stuff. And it intentionally misleads you into feeling sorry for Emily, which is what Hugo says about tricking the reader into trusting all the wrong people. But it's because none of this is even in play. Because you wouldn't be able to. And that's why it's frustrating. That's why I think they could have done a better job of that cottage not being a real house. I thought maybe they could have, it could have been what her subconscious was actually remembering as this horrible act and it was maybe something there you could actually unravel but it's not it's just an extra thing that's tacked on i find it really really odd and also again we talked about like cheeky things they have the same actress yeah. they have the maybe this isn't that cheeky but they have the same actress play the old kim but they don't have the same actress play the young emily emily and i don't i don't get that because she feels pretty young yeah she could be if, if if kim could pass for the young self emily easily could I don't understand why. Because it's not even like you're keeping it secret. No, that's the thing. I was just thinking maybe it's a bit cheeky, but it's not because they're not actually keeping anything secret from you. What I do think is quite cool is the introductory, the, the prologue secretly having within it the mystery, the key to the whole mystery. Because you kind of just like dismiss it as like, oh, something weird that happened to her. But when you, fast, when you go back and you go, oh shit, they stole in his car. It's a nice little twist that, that prologue has more significance than you first realize when you're watching it. That is not a 1980s um, stereo. Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, they they steal his car, <laughs> Danny, um, Danny Dory. He was 27. They steal his car and he puts up some resistance and Kim smashes in his head with a rock. Yeah. Who are these people? Yeah. 
Because Emily seems genuinely shocked by it, and she, as well she should. She's still for nicking his car in the first place. I'm not saying that's the same as murder, but there's still... No. That's the thing. Is like, I feel like there's a big gap, though, between robbing a rich person's car and being a dickhead and murdering someone with a big rock. I feel like that takes a little bit of doing. But they say he survives long enough to tell, say what happened. So they... They put him, like, burying him under some moss. But he's lived long enough to accuse his murderers. Yes. So they stand trial and somehow get off. That's a good point. How do they get off? What do they say happened? <laughs> I just don't know how they got off with that. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Because <laughs> they did murder someone and all the evidence is against them. There's no evidence for them being innocent or anything like that. Madness. I do think this episode is a little suspect from how much it 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 deviously hides from the viewer. Yeah, and that I think that is just revealed at the end how Joey painfully explains why Emily doesn't remember a lot of the details of the crime. And I think like we have said this quite a lot, but there is in mystery programs in general when if if you're if you're given all the best ones are when you're given all the ammo to be able to work it out yourself and. Even if you don't work out yourself, at least you can look back on it and go, oh, I could have pieced all that together. That's fine. The worst ones are episodes like this, where they don't even give you half the stuff to be able to work it out. So when people are working it out in front of you, like Jonathan and Joey, you're like, well, yeah, okay. But you're not giving me, you're, you haven't given me any of this information. So this, I don't feel in any way satisfied because I just didn't have any I couldn't have done this it's all smuggled in in the last 10 minutes really which is odd for such a fucking long episode so so we should also just like reframe the entire mystery Hugo Dory and his wife do this all to basically kill two people well kill one person and lock the other one kill the person who actually killed Danny which they do uh, by chucking her out of a window and then framing it on Emily because they wanted her to go to prison forever because she got off the first time. Yeah, yeah. That's what the whole thing is about. And again, like a lot of these other recent ones, I love how much Hugo... That's when you know you've got the right wife, when his wife is just bang up for murder. So when multiple people are like, yeah, let's do it. That's the thing. It feels like she's the one that's most into it. Do you see her like dressed up all in black, abducting her? But also what's really strange is what happens now because he's got a dead wife that he can't she can't come back to life because this person's in jail well they were going to go to singapore right okay. i was like you're gonna they're gonna lay low and go to singapore but what but can you still use a dead person's passport in singapore yeah <laughs> you can't get from london to singapore what happens when you die and your passport does it just go right that person's dead now he can't travel surely that must be a thing i don't know um what there must be a, is there a dead switch that people flick on and be like right this person can no longer travel. That's got to be a thing, right? Dead switch. Got got to be. Yeah, the dead switch. And go, right, you can't travel. You can't use your passport anymore because you are dead. A guy comes around to your flat and just goes, won't be needing this. Give me, the, give me the passport. Won't be needing that. The dead switch was switched on yesterday for your wife. Please, where is her passport? Dead switch. Dead switch. Uh, <laughs> all right. Should we move on to the elements? Yeah, I feel like it's the messiest episode we've ever done. Because it is a messy episode. I think there's just so much going in. And sometimes, and I'm not having a go, sometimes I feel like they're so messy that you can't, you lose patience with trying to keep up and you just have to go along with it. And then that stops you then from enjoying it because you're just like, whatever. 
whatever whatever gets me through this episode man and i feel really bad about it but yeah so let's uh let's move on to the other elements which make up every episode jonathan creek starting with a victor meldrew award for most unbelievable scene and again it's quite it's quite a lot going on in this i think in terms of straight up could this be in a one foot in the grave episode could this be in a sitcom Joey in a big vase rolling down the stairs. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's really good. I think I haven't even put that in, but yeah, completely. I, I feel like her rolling down the stairs and being stuck, that that for me, that's up there with that like that could be Victor Meldrew in there. Vicar in his own coffin, little nod towards that. Uh, it's not my main nominee, but I feel that's like worthy of a little mention. He's close to being a straight-up sitcom character, but weirdly dials it back a couple of bits. So you just go, oh, okay, this is... Uh, okay, I'm, I'm kind of going along with it. I would like to table this one. It doesn't play like that because of how it's framed in the prologue. But you're a watchman, and you've been hired to guard a movie set, yeah. and it falls on you. And kills you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the middle of the day, nothing's going on, you're having a coffee, and the only thing you've got to watch is that one movie facade, and it falls on you. That's, that's straight up Meldrew. That is straight up Meldrew. It's quite a sad one. Um, one that I've put in there is, just because I th- I think, I, I don't know where else to put it really, it could kind of go in Grot Cabinet, maybe, is, maybe this is because Adam is crap at tricks or whatever, right he feels like he doesn't understand the sword going through the uh, basket trick because the way that he talks about it as if this is there's real magic going on and he's kind of like getting sexual pleasure from the fact that joey is really good at the trick he's like oh, one more no i wouldn't dare it's like feels like he doesn't understand his own trick maybe he's maybe he's getting aroused the the fact that she's so live yeah and she can contort her body so much maybe he's getting off on that but it feels like he doesn't understand his own trick or maybe i actually don't understand that trick because is that trick done by someone being really live and it go yeah it is it's, it's you're basically you're finding um gaps to put the swords through right yeah they're not fake swords they're not fake right okay so she must be able to be like really bendy well that okay that makes more sense then it just felt like he didn't really understand what was going on and he's just getting I guess that what he's doing is, so maybe this does belong to Rock Cabinet. What he's doing is imagining her doing that in bed. Well, there's a bit of um, flirtation between them this episode we can get back to later. Um, I guess the big obvious one is Adam Klaus and the Doctor videos. Yes. Because also it's that comedy sitcom thing, rule of three. It's three. It gets bigger and bigger every time. And just when you think it's over, it happens again. Well, so what are they? First, he's Hitler. First, he's Hitler. Second one, he's in blackface. Yeah. And then the final one, he's the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. And the thing is, it's really odd, but I guess that it would have cost more money for them to actually rotoscope it all. But there's just no possible way of doing it. So all those... It looks like they're all, he's actually just, they filmed that and then they've gone, oh, look how they've done that, how they made that look so realistic. Definitely with the KKK thing. Definitely. I think the Hitler one, they obviously do some effect to it to make it look like it's been doctored, but I think he has just obviously dressed back up. 
Yeah. But the, it's really weird because the effect that they put on is the same effect they put on the car ride at the beginning of the episode to make it look like it's the 80s. So it's basically like accentuating like mad colours. Hitler's shirt is like bright yellow, basically. Because they don't focus on it, but it's a good little comedy setup because Joey's like, oh, you should be dressed. I should be dressed as an imp and you should be dressed up as Mickey from Fantasia. Yeah. And that's why he's got the, the bright clothing. Here's my question with all these Doctor videos. Is Jonathan doing it? Well, so this is the thing. I wrote that as well. It's like, is is it Jonathan that's doing it because he knows all the information? Yeah, because he's doing that. And then there's one time where he closes his laptop before the people come in. I'm just, there's just a little suspicion that I think he's doing it. And I like that it's never confirmed one way or the other. No, but they cast suspicion on Joey right at the end, right? As if it was, it was Joey's idea to do it all. So I, I feel like they start to try, he's, Klaus starts to try and lay the blame on Joey. But I did think as he go in, Jonathan does reveal a little bit of himself when he's talking exactly how it was, how it was done. I, I, I do suspect him. It'd be quite funny if it was. But then if he's doing that, it's just, he just is sick of Adam. Yeah. Because you are related to it. You know, your career is tied in with his and you just... Is this Adam's last episode? Ooh. It could be, you know. I think it could be. Maybe this is Jonathan binning off his career. Maybe this is the end of Klaus. Maybe he doesn't recover from this. I wouldn't mind it, but I at least would want a, like an actual goodbye scene or anything like that. Which, if it is, if this is Adam Klaus's last scene, is pretty shonky to have someone we've had for this many episodes and not get, as much as we despise him, it is really strange not to have a good I mean, it says a lot if Renwick knew this was his last episode. He's like, I'm going to put you in blackface. That guy hasn't done much else, that guy. Ooh. So I guess he's constantly waiting for the call. If they do bring back Jonathan Quigg, it wouldn't be amazing if they brought back Anthony Stewart ahead as uh, Adam Klaus. Oh, what could have been? I mean, I think he'd make the right choice. <laughs> Are you serious? I just need to squeeze my shoulder back. I'm going to engine. Will you stop myself in? Oh, man. Look at that. Where did you find this girl? She's a natural. I've put this in Victim Eldra Maud. It's not going to win it, but it's something that we've talked about a lot. And it is the way that the writers just point blank refuse to just go along with the setup that they've set up themselves. So in all of this, they've set up that Joey has a website where she solves mysteries. So that's all that you need to bring Jonathan and Joey into the world. That is what happens. Emily does contact Joey, but also for no reason, Jonathan meets the girl, meets Emily at a, at a bus stop. Coincidentally, they go straight back to a hotel. He thinks that she's doing it on purpose and because she starts talking about weird mysteries, Jonathan gets the hump with her. They don't actually end up having sex. And then it's barely discussed again. I think when he realizes, he's like, yeah, sorry about that. And that's it. Nothing else ever comes of it ever again. Bizarre. Bizarre. That's like four minutes, that is. <laughs> because I don't know about how TV stuff is is made, stuff like that. Does that ever happen <laughs> where you would just go, shit, we need four minutes. And they just go, right, what can we write that would take four minutes to show? Because I, I I don't know if that's a genuine thing because it feels so pointless. And again, you, you've invented this reason 
for her to for them to be in this girl's world and you use it but then you still cannot be it let it be yeah and you've got to invent this mad coincidence it's just really odd but yeah that's all i got for victor meldrew award what have you got have you got anything more i think it is adam klaus and the doctor's videos it's too ridiculous also just a little note a little mention for doreen mantle appearing mrs gantry who's mrs warboys in one foot in the grave ah yeah so we've had every we've had mrs warboys we've had mrs meldrew we've never had victor never had victor do we have no we didn't have angus deaton but do we have his wife I don't think so. No. Renwick bringing out the big guns, Mrs. Warboys. Also, he directs this episode. Yeah. Well, I think these Joey specials, he directs, I think. He wrote and directed them. Couldn't get Sandy. Thing that's dated the most, I think Adam's reference to computers in general is pretty dated. He says, like, did you log on yet about the internet? And one, I would excuse it as being maybe he's just a Luddite and that's how he talks about it. But remember, we did have an episode where he was invested in 3D porn and seemed to know the ins and outs of that tech, but he doesn't know how to talk about YouTube. I think also when Jonathan's talking about modifying the video, using what I think then would felt like specialized language, like fairly simple color key. Yeah. Whereas kind of that knowledge now is quite common. Yeah. Even among non-specialists. Like, Renwick does seem to, like, really pride himself on showing that he knows the ins and outs of how stuff is made like that. TV production and film production and stuff like that. Because that happens quite a lot. Because we, we had that entire scene where it, the editor in that one episode with the audio like we had that entire scene and it was like that felt like it was a bit laborious because just like it's, who's this who's this for i think that stated the most uh, we've mentioned it before but i i feel like joey gets such a bad rap with her clothes oh those boots they put so many tassels on everything and i just feel really really bad for it because you look at those clothes and you're just like i ca- i do remember all those clothes but i feel sorry that they put you in them yeah, her clothes very early two thousands. Even though this is well, it's not it's twenty ten, but it feels very early two thousands. Yeah, that's still ten years ago. Bloody hell! The worthy approach of ISIS. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's taken on a slightly different connotation. We should have listened to them. We should have bloody listened to them. That's a bit different. That's that's all I got for fingers dated the most. Most British thing, the whole spread that they've got for when they're practicing. I think it's quite good. So oh, like yeah. little tea bags, the biscuits, Yorkshire gold, someone's earning. All that little spread. I, f- I feel like that spread is very British. Yeah, when I first saw that theatre, because I couldn't remember the episode, I was like, oh, God, they've fallen on hard times. But I like the idea they've got a rehearsal theatre space. Mm. Yeah, do you know what's really strange is it really reminded me of that episode of Inside Number Nine. Yes, that um, cheese and crackers. Yeah, yeah, that feels like that's ex- the exact same place. I wonder if it could be, you know, inside Bernie Clifton's dressing room. That's the episode. That's right. Yeah, which is about two an old c- comedy double act, and that's where they go to practice all their routines before having their comeback thing. Or I guess maybe it's that what is happening is a real thing that happens. Like they've got, mm. you probably take over a really smallish theater just to be able to practice stuff like that, like sight lines and things maybe. Can we do that? Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, there is like something cool about being like backstage. Uh, I know it's like the bread thing. I was like, oh, I love being backstage. But there is something really cool about just walking around places like that. It's the same as like walking around the back of a pub 
when a pub is closed and going in the kitchen and the cellars and stuff like there's something really cool about it <laughs> it's like you intentionally got yourself locked in yeah <laughs> no just like from having friends and stuff like that i did actually read up i like that they, go, they lock up and you just come from the shadows yeah <laughs> i did read a really interesting thing recently which is like a nice quote from someone who said the best thing that you can do is befriend someone who works at a museum because they'll show you stuff after dark and they'll show you around like the back of a museum and stuff and i was like oh my god i'd never thought that and i do know someone who is like runs cardiff museum so i bet i could get backstage and backstage but i could get like and have a look have a look there after dark and stuff definitely gonna do that the welsh remake of the ben stiller film yeah <laughs> weirdly with that film i've only ever seen the third one and none of the other ones we could put that in the thing of state the most where it's like using that as a shorthand using like oh she's an egyptian lady using that as shorthand for the occult yeah like that's well that maybe they'll come into a, a category later on but yeah that whole spare i thought was really good jonathan's most british thing jonathan's really really flat looking disgusting ale oh yeah i had to look at that for a while because i thought it was a pint of coke and then i was like no yeah it's a it's, a, it's an ale or pint of wild yeah that kind of beer all that kind of stuff is when ipas and PLLs, like the American style ones, like fizzy ones, started becoming popular. I remember going to a pub. Uh, it's my friend's pub up in Nottingham. It's an amazing pub uh, called the King Billy. And he I, and the guy behind the bar mentioned, I was like, oh, what PLLs have you got? And then they, he told me, and then I got it, and it was like basically like flat Bovril, 8%. You're like, oh, that's not kind of, I, I meant like, like a punk IPA. <laughs> Sorry. You shouldn't have to drink anything that's the same temperature as your blood. Oh, it's so it's not on. I have a bunch of friends who are really into like the campaign for real ale scene and are like members of it. And a couple of times they've come up to London and gone like, oh, come to this real ale festival. I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll come. It's fine. And it'll be a boiling hot day and everyone will be sitting outside drinking this just like warm thing and be like mm, oh that's, that's a lovely drop it's like no it's not it's disgusting you notice of those things as well that the cider always sells out because they serve the cider cold and people are like yeah i'll just drink that i know it tastes disgusting but i'll have that it's why every pump now is extra cold people like cold drinks yeah i it, it, i don't i don't get it. i don't get that like even guinness realized that even guinness went we're gonna do guinness extra cold because people like it and it's like the most uh, sold guinness it's most popular guinness well i think that that for me is the most british thing those types of ales because i don't think they have really caught on i think the only one really that's properly caught on elsewhere is uh newcastle brown ale uh yeah that's it that's what i've got for most british thing I just put dot cotton on super string theory. Yeah. <laughs> just to reference the dot cotton. Good, most British things. Even though his pint looks disgusting, that pub did look delightful. Better have a good quiz machine, though. Yeah, it looked like a really nice old, old man pub. He was nice. on, um, I saw Joey's on a Peroni in this episode. She was, yeah. No grosh down there, maybe. And pouring into a glass as well. Classy. I think she'd drink from the bottle, Joey. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Or, or just get a pint. Or just have a pint. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then. So obviously, this is made. Well, this that's the thing. Now we're getting into a situation where it wasn't made that long ago, which is 2010, so only 10 years ago. But is some stuff is not right. I I kind of mentioned it, but yeah, using a young Egyptian woman as shorthand for witch. <laughs> Nothing else. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that's all right at all. I feel like even though he's made out that he gets a bum deal, Adam 
his comments anyway. Because oh, what's the actual one? The Hitler one. What did he actually say? I actually... Oh, I, I did write down. I don't think he actually said something that bad. I think he was just misinterpreted, wasn't he? Yes. And the same later on, he says, let's hope we all don't get eaten alive. And people are like, oh, he was talking about cannibalism. But actually, he was talking about the mosquitoes. But Because like, I guess he has to be misunderstood because you can't just have him saying that stuff. And that all that stuff is very Meldrew. Just like, oh, I didn't... Yeah. That frustration of just being always taken at the wrong value. Yeah, yeah. But his turban's back in this. They just can't let it go. I put... Emily is accused of murder, right? She gets arrested. She's taken to, I guess, her holding cell or whatever in a jail how were jonathan and joey allowed to visit her yeah <laughs> and they go in and chat with her for ages and then he also then is in the dock arguing for her it's like how would they uh, you can't just go visit a murderer they have no like they, i thought only like legal we've had this before where maddie's been called in as someone's representative but they I don't think that's allowed. Also, when Jonathan takes the stand, he explains how this crime happened in the 1880s. Mm. And then he don't really have anything to say about Emily's case. He goes, well, no. probably they probably did something. What? Yeah. You were Jonathan and then, <laughs> Yeah, and the best bit about that is he gets up, says all that, doesn't really argue for Emily. She gets found guilty and he's like, oh, God. Got And then they, when they meet at the, jo- um, I said the Joshua tree, the Judas tree yeah. at the end, then they find out, they go, well, that's pretty bad, actually. Or maybe just let her, maybe let her rot. I don't <laughs> they do actually just go, oh, well. And I guess justice has been served in a way. Um, also, that's really, we didn't say it earlier, but it's really messy at the end when Mrs. Warboy is sending texts to get them all to meet at the Judas tree. Yeah. I, I, it's really odd, like parent trapping them. Really strange. I've put, and this is from Joey, which is a bit sad because you think she'd be a bit more progressive. When they're talking about mental health of Emily and talking about like repression and things like that, Joey says, you read about all that kind of bollocks, like just dismissing that as bollocks. That's not all right, is it? <laughs> At all. I put this is not all right and it's a little bit of production. There's a bit where somebody off camera definitely throws that cat on the table. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't jump up. Someone off camera just chucks a cat on a table. A cat. Because it falls like, from a greater high and it's just going, oh, right. Yeah, that's true. Are you a, Maybe as like a legal thing, you're allowed to use like seven of the nine cat lives, but you're not allowed to use all nine. That's out of order. You've got to save one for Midsummer Murders. Yeah. <laughs> so let's open up the grot cabinet then some quite british stuff in this the vicar saying to mrs warboys i know that's not her name but it's my name and thing make sure you're fit enough to come and buff up my pews and she does later on <laughs> yeah it's a big actual part of the storyline <laughs> that's pretty good I-, I feel like all the lingering shots of emily's boobs it's pretty grotty because that's just the way it's filmed and that's Renwick. He's finally taken over all these things he's been writing for years. He can now stage them. Salima's side boob. Yeah. And some proper shagging. Ah, like mad shagging <laughs> for a Saturday night. <laughs> for a, um, <laughs> not TV, just Saturday night in general. Yeah. Just crazy. Crazy. One that I've put in here, we've talked about how mad it is anyway. Jonathan and Emily meet and immediately go into a hotel. Fair play, Creek. But also... 
when they're kind of kissing and then he stops and gets up and she's like, do you want to go first? And it's just like, yeah, well, what is that for? She's saying, you better go fucking clean yourself because I don't know where you, I've just literally picked you up on a bus stop. And he starts cleaning his ears and then she says, oh, just two things um, about me. I remember the other thing is that she's got some mad trauma. The uh, the, uh, the first thing though is that she doesn't do tongues in ears and he's about to clean his ears. So we meant to like take from that that actually one of the things that Jonathan likes is having someone's tongue in his ear. Definitely. I, I, no, I'm not putting my tongue anywhere near anyone's ears. I love that. That's a masterly segue from uh, yeah, two things. Uh, no ears. And also this mad thing happened to me when I was 18. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> what? Um, That's put me off, I'm afraid. Really strange. I think as well, the, in the coal shed, so much odd stuff is happening. Do they all just keep farting? Oh, I don't know, yeah. And then when Jonathan goes to the toilet, is he having a wee or is he having a shit? I think he's having a wee because he talks about the coffee percolating. But isn't isn't coffee to do with, like, poo? Like, coffee makes you poo? Uh, is it, uh, I, I've never heard that. Oh, okay. Like, like, it's a laxative. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong, then. No, I, I just always thought coffee made you poo for some reason. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, but that's how he figures out the five, the 15, 15. Yeah. That's, his, that's literally the epiphany. He needed a pooer away. Yeah. And he looked at his watch and that's how he figured it out. So that's this episode's epiphany is Jonathan's bodily functions. Got some good one-liners. Um, got Adam Klaus referring to Jonathan's dick as his magic Johnson. Yeah. He also says, my John Dory was drizzled with creative juices. Oh. You know who is quite grotty? The actress who plays Salima. Why? What does she do? So I looked her up and she is big on Instagram. Is she? She's got 408,000 followers. What? So after she got out of the acting game, she, in 2016 of June, 2016, she announced that she's embraced spirituality and became a nun. She adopted the name Gaia Sophia Mother. Right. She posts wild stuff on Instagram. Does she? There's genuinely wild stuff so she posted um she posted a video of donald trump in which she wrote giant orbs and angels around donald trump donald trump has now the full activation of father son and you can see the massive angels and orbs around him as he gives this historic speech to bring peace and to initiate the highest order of law from the heavens to the earth peacekeeper is here jesus she is it's on a different planet these days, I think. That's wild. Oh my god. Good luck. Good luck. That's a strange thing, that is. Big posts where she thanks coronavirus for cleansing the world from mass pedophile rings. You're joking. No, no. It says, I am. Um, yeah, stop mass pedophile rings, stop and repair pollution damage, clean our rivers and oceans. Thank you in our son, Jesus Christ, our Lord Donald Trump. Jesus. <laughs> Salima. To be fair, coronavirus probably has stopped uh, paedophile rings in a way, but that is a really strange way of looking at, at the repercussions of it. I feel like that's, that's mad. I'm going to look at her thing afterwards. This is, actually, this is actually quite appropriate for today's episode. She's actually done a, a post about Egyptian history, which mm. has ISIS on it, where she compares ISIS to Jesus Christ to Donald Trump. Wow. So that's something for you to um, pour over on your lunch today. And then also just a lot of very um, revealing pictures of her. Wow. What? That is... A lot going on since um last 10 years for her. I remember... Uh, who was it that I found out? Oh, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the scientist who's looking after the Triceratops in Jurassic Park. 
when I started looking into him, Jared Molner, I think, something like that. Or and but yeah, he he has some quite questionable views about a lot of people. Um, and the same as like I don't want to talk about it, but the guy who plays Dodson as well. Oh yeah, he's in jail. It's really odd when you look into. I think about seven actors in Jurassic Park. That's two of them. I know. <laughs> It's really odd when you start looking at people like that and then you find out horrible, horrible stuff. I'm happy to close that for another yeah, week. Yeah, we need to close and lock Salima in there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Not with Klaus, though, God. <laughs> well, that's the thing. If it's his last episode, we're letting him out. We're letting him out into the world. He's gone now. <laughs> we can't contain him any longer. <laughs> Romance update, then. I feel like this is another episode where they're not sure what to do with Joey and Jonathan. Yeah. And I feel like the way that he speaks to her is disgusting at the beginning when she comes in. Oh, yeah. And he says, I hate it. If you come here looking for a job. Why is he such a dick to her? What I would do instead of instead of framing that, but this is going back to a thing that we've said a million times, which is I don't think Renwick knows how to write male-female relationships without there being a weird confrontation. You can't actually write friendship because there's a... It, because what Jonathan does is kind of like Sherlocky and deducts quite a lot of stuff from her recent events. I don't know where you get the idea I've been waitressing. The slight reddening of your fingertips is characteristic of someone who's recently been handling hot plates. Uh, the chafing on your knees, almost certainly the result of cleaning floors. Both consistent with nightly work in a restaurant. While the absence was shopping, it appears to suggest you recently fall on hard times. Add to this, faint imprint of the letters Cavs Noit on your forearm where you've been leaning on the words situations vacant in the small ads conclusion's a simple one it's crap how you could have framed that was oh you've obviously fallen on hard times let me get you a job but instead he's like oh if you're coming looking for a job you're not getting one two seconds later she's working for him they've done it a couple of times before but it's not a default thing where it's the Sherlock Holmes setup of him making magical inferences from small observations yeah and jonathan's done it a couple of times before but it's not fun no he it's cruel and also it works in sherlock holmes in jonathan creek the inferences that you're making are so wild based on the d data that i don't think they're very jonathan creek no because there's a million other reasons you might have a burnt thumb it, there's yeah it's too improbable and i feel it kind of breaches his style of detection it's kind of odd what they do with her as what they do with joey as well because it's an interesting thing at one point they refer to jonathan as her dr watson mm. and i kind of like that i'm like oh that's quite funny that's a nice little tension where it's like oh you're not sure who's the who's the sherlock who's the dr watson it sounds like she took credit for the grinning man yes which is actually not equally maybe that's why he's got the hump with her at the beginning of the episode yeah, because that's a good point, it sounds actually. like as if she wrote it up on her website and she took all the credit for it mm. which is not all right i don't think but then there's no real tension with her anymore so they're not going down the route she's a bit flirty with adam adam's a bit flirty with her yeah because but I, I feel like they're just not exploring anything with this but also i think in this episode you really feel that Jonathan is getting older. In this episode, I felt it because he seemed really grey. Yeah, that's true. And also, and also, it just feels like he's not into anything at the moment. It's sad, isn't it? Like, I know this is the last episode where we see Jonathan Creek as the Jonathan Creek that we know, but it really does feel like 
when you watch, because I've just watched the next episode very close to this, when you watch them both together, it's not like here he's like, yeah, fucking magical mysteries. I love solving them. It doesn't seem like he's into anything. Maybe that tallies with the idea of, is he sabotaging Klaus? He's just tired of, sick of it. He's just going, I'm going to make this burn. Yeah. And he's, do, he's doctoring the videos. Even though we said it's a wild coincidence that he ends up going to the hotel room with Emily, mm. I do like the scene for the purpose that it's continuing that strand of the women and mystery thing has really screwed up his life. Yeah. Because he it really presses into his insecurity that women are only interested in him for him being able to solve stuff. Yes. And it really presses a button. And in the last episode, he talks about those two women messing up my life. Yeah. And I think that's the place that we find him in this episode, that he has lost quite a lot of joy. He's not really interested in magic. He seems quite bitter. He's mean to Joey. Like, he's not the Jonathan Creed that we love from season one anymore. Yeah, I think that's the sad thing, isn't it? So, yeah, it's interesting watching this episode and the next episode so close together, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in the next episode. But yeah, it just I just written here, it's like, John, Jonathan really doesn't seem like he's enjoying himself doing anything at the moment. But I also, I just, I kind of don't like what they do with Joey as well. And they... Don't know if they want to set her up as an equal to him or not, but they still also make her like a little bit of a cartoon and they kind of keep doing that almost like Quentin-esque mm. uh, thing where they were like sticking her in a vase and yeah. pushing her down the stairs and stuff like that. Like That is Maddie going down the rubbish chute, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, yeah. This one bit was the end of the episode where Joey makes a little impassioned speech. Because I know what it is to believe in someone that much to build your whole future on someone because it's something you know and feel deep down is right with every instinct you ever trusted. And you know, that is absolutely the way, the true and perfect way to get shut upon from a great height. I know you know, and it makes no difference, does it? Who's she talking about? Yeah, this is the thing. I was like, is she talking about him? That's what I was... Th- or is she talking about this ex that we've seen? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Is it the ex? For me, that doesn't really play because in this special, they never make a reference to him. You're relying on the audience to remember what was a comedy plot line. Yeah. But if she's replying to Jonathan, we have not had enough in their relationship for that to even take hold. Definitely not. Because you don't get the sense that she idolizes him or looks up to him or she's into him in any way. No. I thought it was a really odd little speech that. I've literally written, ask Gav what he thinks this is about. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I wrote down, I was like, is she talking about Jonathan? Because that isn't how I perceive their relationship at all. No. Bloody confusing to me. It is kind of a sweet little scene, but at the same time, when you're not really sure what it is, kind of takes away from it a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. Odd one. Odd one. One odd episode. But we haven't got to worry about Joey for too much longer because the next episode is her final episode. So we have another lady who's who's come in and gone out of Jonathan's life before we've even known what their relationship is. And if we've got no Adam, are we still going to be able to find Grot? I, I, I have watched the episode and yes, we are. On the next episode, we're examining how a corpse can disappear from a locked study in the clue of the savant's thumb. Up the Creek is produced by RKG. We make podcasts and videos about games, movies, basically anything fun, including 23-year-old BBC shows about a magician's assistant who lives in a windmill. If you'd like to find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash RKG.